Thanks for downloading the Humanities Institute of Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers from events hosted by the Humanities Institute of Ireland, University College Dublin. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash HII. In this episode, the second of two recordings from the Redrawing Dublin event, which took place in the Dublin City Library and Archive on the 14th of March 2011. In this part, a panel discussion informed by readings of the book Redrawing Dublin. Okay, so um, we invited the panel to um, respond for five to ten minutes, each of them, and and basically we gave them a fairly wide brief to just maybe take uh, any aspect of the project that they wanted to respond to. Our particular priority in framing the discussion was the question of interdisciplinarity, but necessarily interdisciplinarity is kind of an empty idea unless you start to attach it to a particular set of concerns or objects or processes. So um, interdisciplinarity is kind of our background consideration, and we invited people to have a certain latitude in how they, they responded to the book. So the sequence we have is that we've invited uh, Professor Hugh Campbell, UCD Architecture, to respond first, and then we have Dr. Daniel Dewsbury, who is an Associate Fellow of the Graduate School of Creative Arts and Media, um, and also an independent artist and researcher. Um, and then we'll have Pat Cook, who is Director of the Masters in Cultural Policy in UCD, and a uh, very well-known um, creative practitioner in the whole domain of cultural curating and public culture. And then finally we'll have Sarah Tuck, who's Director of Create, um, who will be our final speaker from the panel and then we will have a discussion from the floor and then we've invited um, Alan Mee who's director of the urban design program in UCD to be our final speaker of the day and to respond both to what the panel has said but also maybe to pick up on the themes that have been dropped or to pick up on any ideas that may not have surfaced in the course of our discussion. So without further ado I'll hand over to Professor Hugh Campbell. Uh, thanks Mick. And um, thanks for the invitation to this event. And I suppose I should just start by congratulating the authors on the publication. Um, apart from its many virtues, I suppose, just the very virtue of making a publication of this um, scale and seriousness um, <coughs> and attractiveness um, it, it is not to be underestimated. Um, and in thinking about how to respond, I suppose, I was thinking mostly about the method of the book, which has already been discussed a little bit by um, in the initial discussion. The way in which it manages to navigate between individual stories and an overall picture. That it somehow manages both graphically, I would say, and in terms of its content, to sometimes oscillate or sometimes combine those two perspectives at once, which is, I think, the thing that generates its particular richness. Um, and I was thinking about this and thinking about where that comes from, that approach to the city. Um, implicit in the title, Redrawing Dublin, is that this is something, uh, a retake on something, that something new needs to be done in terms of the way the city is depicted in order for us to be allowed to understand the city differently, maybe in the first instance, and the implication might be also do things differently once we understand it differently. Um, 
And in that, I suppose it reminded me, um, well, of, of recent ventures into um, trying to shift our understanding of cities. I was thinking of projects like the Venice Biennale of four years back, the Century Cities and its attendant publications, the work that's come out of the LSE, academic as it might be, but then re, I suppose, cast to reach much larger audiences, which shares with the publication something about this, um, if you like, combination of statistical evidence with anecdotal colour, you might say. And then I was also thinking a little further back to um, the work of the Dutch practice MVRDV, who about mm, 15 years ago now, 10, 15 years ago, uh, had a series of publications, most famously one called Pharmax Floraria Ratio Maximum, which again had, had a fatness, which is somewhat uh, reminiscent of this volume, and a similar kind of take on the combination of statistical evidence um, and uh, the anecdotal uh, colour in trying to build up an idea that architecture needed to proceed, if you like, from an understanding of the given data inherent in any landscape. And from there, I, I found myself thinking uh, about the roots of that kind of, uh, that sort of depiction of the city. Um, and I was thinking about, the, I, 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 which I think are in the 19th century. I mean, I guess you can go back much further, but particularly in the 19th century, in the, in the big middle of the 19th century onwards, you get this um, outbreak almost of surveying and mapping um, and classifi classifying of cities under, very, uh, under many and varied um, headings. You might think, for instance, uh, and with many and varied um, effects, you might think, for instance, of the work of Henry Mayhew in London and his mapping of the, um, the geography, if you like, of the urban poor and the way in which, again, that project was as much to do with, if you like, a kind of an objective spatial mapping of that territory with a kind of close-up on um, the people's experience within that setting, individual stories, individual narratives. So those two things in play in that kind of work as well. Or you might think about John Snow's cholera map, which in a slightly different way, by stepping back from the immediate evidence and making the map of a territory, began to understand that what had been thought about as being something that was airborne was actually a waterborne disease, was actually borne by the network that had just been in, put in place in the city. So these kinds of uses of the mapping technique on the one hand and the close-up investigation, the sort of empirical evidence on the other, um, are interesting and brought to some kind of apogee um, by who else but the French, I suppose, um, at the same time in the 19th century and then later into the 20th century. I'm, I'm drawing here on a, a wonderful essay by... Um, a friend of mine, Diana Periton, who, who, who has written an essay called Urban Life in which she talks about this um, classificatory and statistical um, analysis of the city that emerged in Paris in the 19th century and was kind of brought to this pitch of perfection uh, in the early 20th century. Um, and if you think about projects like Baron Haussmann's retooling of Paris in the 19th century. A lot of his discussion of that project and a lot of the reaction to that project was somehow that they were allowing the city to be more organ-like, to be more, to work more like in some ways like a machine and in some ways like a human body, that all of the parts were working together as a, as a whole. 
without friction and without difficulty, and that the opening up of all those new avenues and the cutting of all those new routes was all part of getting this organism to work as one seamless whole. Um, that idea of the city as this whole composed of parts um, was then elaborated, if you like, in, in, in a series of um, statistical mappings that were made off the back of censuses from, about, from the middle of the 19th century onwards. In the early 20th century, there was established in Paris a, um, the École des Hautes Etudes Urbaines, which became a kind of mouthpiece, if you like, for the latest thinking on these kind of urban statistics and how they might be used. And one man in particular, a man called Bertillon, was responsible for the sort of, for, for taking the relatively, if you like, um, unreflexive science of statistics and making it much more nuanced in the way in which it allowed you to understand what was going on in the city at a particular time. Um, the way in which Diana uh, memory describes it was that instead of um, using statistics as just defining unrelated proportions of a total, he began to manipulate them so that you got dis differentiated distributions of a particular effect. In other words, rather than just simply noting that the population of Paris was rising, he started to look at where, how, I mean, he started, I suppose, uh, to say obvious things, well, that's only relevant for you uh, to women of, um, chi of childbearing age. So if you get into that particular subset of your overall population and then start to look at the distribution of those people and then start to look at incidents of childbirth among those people, you get a much more detailed much closer to the ground reading of what's actually going on. And what also this kind of manipulation of statistics allowed him to do was to start to look at overlaying of, let's say, incidences of the density of occupation of particular arrondissement with incidents of mortality, so that you could start to note, if you like, if not quite cause and effect, at least the coincidence of those two phenomena. And so what Bertillon was doing was, in a way, offering again, and in a different way, this coexistence of two uh, scales, if you like, of interrogation, the scale of the individual story, almost, which is always inherent in a statistic, and the scale of the overall map. And just in finishing, I suppose, and thinking about the impact of that sort of thinking, this is Paris, 1919, 1920, and two years later, in 1922, um, the young, relatively young Le Corbusier exhibited the first of his urban plans, a Ville Contemporaine, also in Paris, um, a city for three million inhabitants, of course, um, which, which somehow managed uh, to move, or to jump, I would say, without regard for the intervening scale, from the idea of an overall utopian city of gleaming towers to the individual perched in one of those towers looking out across this scene um, at an unadulterated nature, if you like, left free by the towers. Um, so there was something in Le Corbusier's makeup that was attracted to both extremes, you might say, the individual in their space and the overall urban grain. And then on the other hand, in 1922 in Paris, you have, of course, um, the publication of Ulysses, which um, I think manages something else, manages in a different way to combine those two scales. Uh, Joyce was very fond of the image of the labyrinth, um, it was one of the ones that he invoked very frequently in, the way, in talking about the way he wanted to depict his native city. The labyrinth, of course, having this dual characteristic of being, on the one hand, when seen from within, a kind of bewildering space with no clear pattern and no clear way to move, 
and then from seen from above um, a kind of consummate um, human product, a beautifully devised pattern with a clear logic, a clear beginning and end. And what Joyce tries to do at various points in the book is to again navigate between those two points of view, the point of view from below and the view um, from above. But I would say that in some ways, uh, in his hands, the two are much more happily um, reconciled. So um, coming back, I suppose I'm interested there to hear that it's going to be on Bloomsday that the city will be presented not as uh, disparate voices, but as a single voice, a single patient, albeit um, one ready for therapy. Um, and I suppose I, I would just end, end with, with that thought that I think maybe the achievement of the book is that it reconciles those two scales of investigation. And in the, it's in the capacity to reconcile the individual with the overall pattern that any approach, I think, to successful um, urban planning, urban design, urban futures uh, must lie. Um, I suppose I, I, I want to make about three or four points, I suppose, about the book. And the first one is really that I've come to this uh, as something of an interloper um, as um, I'm, I'm based in Belfast and uh, uh, it's, it's 15 years this week since I, uh, since I left Dublin to move to Belfast. But, um, and there isn't necessarily a great tradition of uh, urban exchange between um, Belfast uh, and Dublin or vice versa. Um, but... Something that struck me as I was looking at the book was how these questions of development and form and the quality and character and the grain of the urban, um, as, they're, as they're explored and, and characterised in this book, um, that these are even more urgent topics for us in Belfast, perhaps, um, where, where, the, where the question of, um, of the urban itself, you know, the, all of these all of this stuff about the character of the urban is even, is, is even more, um, uh, I suppose, perilous, if you like. You know, it's, it's more tenuous um, because of, you know, uh, because of, in certain ways, Belfast has, has been allowed to be quite non-urban for, uh, for quite a long time, not just because of the troubles, obviously, but because of all of the things that came out indirectly from the troubles, direct rule and the absence of planning responsibility and the, uh, the, the way in which for 30 years the city became a kind of experimental, social, spatial, milita military zone and, and stopped being a city. And, um, and then at the beginning of the peace process, the, the peace process happened to coincide with the boom in Irish property development. So we went from one crisis into, into another, arguably. We, we, in, and again, without any localised, accountable... Um, planning in the city. So as I was reading the book, it really struck me that, you know, so in terms of methodology and in terms of approach, there's so much here that, um, that I think is so rich far beyond Dublin. Um, and um, I'll be waving the book at quite a lot of people in Belfast, if it, just to strengthen my arms, if anything. But, um, um, and I think that, I think that Something that came up, in fact, something that came up in, in the question there and in, in some of the discussion earlier and what Hughes just said about, um, about the interdisciplinary nature of this, it, it really, it kind of, it thrills me actually to see, uh, to see us moving away from something that, uh, from 
architecture, planning, um, spatial research seen as something that's very uh, technical, elevated and transcendent, something that's not actually uh, embedded within the city itself and in, in the experiences of the city. It, it thrills me to see that it's actually... Um, that that in the way in which this research has been presented in the book, in the way in, in which it's actually been approached and conducted, that there there's such a uh, there's such a, a multiplicity of different voices and approaches. And as an artist who's very concerned with questions of urban form and uh, urban character, I'm I'm really I'm really uh, excited to see that. And it fills me with some kind of you know, it fills me with hope that we can actually. You know, use methods and approaches like this in other places. I think this is this is without doubt something that we can that we can uh, that we can bring to to other contexts. There's a there's an organisation in Belfast called the Forum for Alternative Belfast that um, that some of you will have um, heard of or maybe met members of. And uh, and in some ways, at, 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 in a more rudimentary fashion at this stage, some of the things that they're trying to do, some of the the, the researches that they're trying to conduct and and the uh, analysis that they're trying to do, as well as the actual spatial solutions that they're trying to propose, um, I can see are, are very, very sympathetic to the aims of, of, uh, of the book. Um, so I saw each map and visualisation in the book as a kind of further provocation. In a, in a way, I saw each section in here, each, each chapter, I saw as being a, um, uh, you know, a, a jumping-off point for people then to... To, to take and use and uh, and to develop something with um, uh, a, a, and a, a couple of people in looking at the book asked me you know who's it aimed at and uh, who the who the potential readership is it is it meant to be aimed at architects or planners or is it meant to have a and for me i mean for, for me it seems obvious that it's that it is absolutely an urban source book and it's a it Really characterises a way in which all of us can um, can both learn ways of looking at the space around us, but also can uh, can can see how the knowledge that we have from our use and in you know our habitation and construction of space can be valuable and can have some can have some um, uh, can have some input into the into the sort of uh, in, into the making of knowledge and the making of value you know about the city and i'm delighted to see the way in which something that is uh, resolutely pro urban is um is again and again and again emphasized um in the book in the pro- in the whole project um i think that there's i think we can see threads of anti urbanism um coming coming to the fore now in all in, from all kinds of different directions uh, I've been speaking to people recently who have identified this in all sorts of different contexts. I was writing a, I was writing a, um, a book about. I was writing a, a, a small kind of pamphlet publication um, about Ljubljana um, last year, which I was writing from the context of somebody, uh, part of a series of books, but the first to be written by somebody who's not Slovenian. And I, so I spent a long time doing research there and, and looking into uh, some of the questions that, are, that some of the some of the same questions that are. That, are, that come out in this book and, and, and again there in speaking to people in Ljubljana, a city that's developing very quickly and has developed very quickly in the last number of years, again this anti-urbanism was flagged up to me and I see, um, I see anti-urbanism 
definitely in the way in which Belfast has developed in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, I think that I think particularly there's a section about the the um, you know the uses of uh, of arguments about sustainability. Um, here we are, um, you know, and about how how questions around sustainability can can become uh, in terms of the way they're used uh, can become ways of of arguing against um, you know urbanism when planning policy and lifestyle choices combine to sustain a middle class urbanism where your car is almost as big as your single story inner city home when you obsess about the energy rating of a single building but are indifferent to the environmental costs of suburban sprawl when you rail against the visibility of taller buildings but are silent on the invisibility of poor quality high density apartment design when you champion urban public transport but distrust or dislike inner city living um, and of course this isn't something that's this isn't something that's ju- this kind of anti-urbanism here um, you know explored through the ways in which it's vocalized in in um, in certain kinds of green rhetoric but you know um, but explored elsewhere in the book in other ways it's not something recent it's not something new and um, of course you know um, David Harvey various other people analyzed the the way in which the suburbs became so crucial to the development of a particular American political project so that as you move people out of cities and turn them into property owners with their own little uh, plot of land and their, their, their private stake in their space so they become less uh, inclined to, to uh, take collective political action and become, become more... Uh, become more uh, entrenched in the in their own private interest in the in the conditions of work that allow them to carry on paying their mortgage um, and these questions of private and public I suppose brought me then pr- the balance between private and public um, made me think about the uh, a tension a, a possible tension that I that you know came into my head as I was reading the book between a, the type of activist urban localism that's you know that's championed espoused in the book and um a, some the potential for some kind of larger sense of publicness or civic uh in, belonging or inclusion i wondered if there is a tension there um as cities become more corporatized as corporations or, or rather as corporations become more privatized let's say as city councils and so on hive off more and more of their uh, their activities and their their industries to to private companies or or to um, funny halfway arm's length semi private companies um, does that kind of does that kind of very 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 local street by street urban activism risk um, if you like handing over the larger uh, battlefield as perhaps already conceded, and is there something that we that we still need to um, to to prioritise in terms of keeping the city a public space? Is there um, is that you know is that necessarily um, a problem in in I mean I'm thinking of as well you know the this whole raft of competitive city strategies that we see in 
you know, European Capital of Culture programs, design, European design capitals, um, Olympic uh, international games, bids, and so on. We have the Olympics in the in 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 the in Belfast. But since we're within the UK, we have the Olympics coming up next year. Derry is the UK city of culture. The year after, um, Belfast is bidding to host um, manifestos. European Biennale the year after that. There's a, there's a never-ending kind of way in which cities have to be, be competitive uh, corporate entities looking for edge, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, in comparison to one another, uh, in which context it amazed me that Bertie Ahern says in the book that we're, we're n- we, I think he says we're nosing ahead of Vienna and Rome. <laughs> Maybe he's just talking about Drumcondra, but... Uh, <laughs> But, um, but in the context of these competitive spaces, and then when I think cities as competitive spaces uh, internationally and within cities, the, the increasing competition for space within cities. And, you know, in Belfast I see that, that competition uh, as, a, as an active sectarianisation of space. I wonder whether we can find a way of, of talking about the tension between this, this really, you know, localized street based activism uh, and and the and the larger privatization of the city um, there's there were two there were two parts i'll just close on the two things that were uh, that I had to think about for a little while in the in a, a kind of list of um, suggestions um, after the twenty five things you might like to see in your area and the twenty five things you you definitively would not like to have in your area dog shit or, um, you know, uh, broken down buildings and so on and so on. There are some suggestions for how you can actually actively improve your neighbourhood, your, your area. And one of them was to avoid ideologically driven solutions. I thought that was, I thought that was very, very interesting. Um, and, one, and the other was to cultivate developers uh, in your local area. And I thought that, I thought that these are pragmatic and, and are about finding solutions for the here and now, and are about um, you know about developing better uh, neighbourhoods in the immediate future. But I wonder then how we start to think about the city on a longer term and on a, on a larger scale. But none of this is to take away from what I have already said. I think is a fantastic book that I, that I will be waving around. You can check my arms in a few months. Well, I, I want to follow on by congratulating the authors on, uh, especially on the language, punchy, direct, full of attitude, edge, um, and doesn't pull its punches in any way. Um, that is so refreshing to read, and it's one of the things I'll be coming back to in a moment. Um, I just basically have two ideas as a result of reading the book that I want to share with you. One is an overarching one, and one is a, a detailed one. The overarching one is just the overall impression left by the book, really. Um, And a phrase that kind of was rumbling around my head as I tried to grasp what this kaleidoscopic book was about was uh, one of Yeats's, where he was actually talking about nationality, and he says, we must always remember, he says, that nationality lies in the things that escape analysis. In other words, every time we think we have something pinned down, that's the moment when it actually is fugitive again. And I wondered, would that be also true, in a sense, of the city, and even of the project itself, in some sense, 
And then I remembered having read uh, Jonathan Raban's Soft City a number of years ago, and I went back through and had a look at it. Um, I just want to quote for you one passage from that book here. Um, Quote, The city and the book are opposed forms. To force the city's spread, contingency, and aimless motion into the tight progression of a narrative is to risk a total falsehood. There is no single point of view from which one can grasp the city as a whole. For each citizen, the city is a unique and private reality, and the novelist, planner, or sociologist finds himself dealing with an impossibly intricate tessellation of personal roots, spores, and histories within the labyrinth of the city. And to some extent, this resonates, I think, with some of the things that you were saying as well, and it's the kind of this intriguing relationship between uh, planning and idiosyncrasy and what defines the personality of a, of a, of a city. Um, and in a funny kind of a way, I think your book almost enacts that kind, of, that kind of schizophrenia, in a sense, in the way that your relentless um, agitators for, for rationalist planning. But your actual book, your form, is actually quite shard-like and quite, as I say, kaleidoscopic in the way it's put together and in the way, it, indeed, it approaches its subject. Now, there aren't any obvious logical chapters in the book, um, and it is, on the whole, quite an impressionistic, and indeed one might say, you know, it has, it has a proper emotion underlying its rationalist analysis as well. And both of these strains are running together in no ultimately coherent form. But I do think, in a sense, that does reflect the kind of question of, well, where does the boundary of rationality lie between, between planning and idiosyncrasy? And where this was ultimately summed up for me as a question was in that exercise you go through at the end where you offer us, I think it's three international city ratings according to various rational criteria. And then you do an exercise where you basically draw, you merge all of the criteria applying, correct me if I'm wrong, to these three international ratings and you produce this kind of super list of super, super city ratings. And what really fascinated about me about that list was I looked right down through it and somehow Berlin had disappeared. It wasn't there at all. I mean, Berlin is one of my favorite European cities, but it seemed when you got the super rationality going, a totally irrational consequences, consequence resulted. So in these comparative studies, it's interesting that it, it reminds us, I suppose, that planning, while, while it is essentially a, a rational process, is prone to all of these other idiosyncratic things. And there's always the possibility, of course, that... Dublin is in some way an indefinably good city or better city than the totality of the planning failures that you outline in the book in some way. But that is something we can debate. Um, the other thing, the specific thing that I thought I'd take up on is comes directly out of my own experience, which is I spent 25 years as a, as a heritage manager in this city. I managed Kilmainham Jail. And uh, I remember one time a, a, planning, a planning battle that I lost and it still rankles with me to this day, which was the city council had come up with this really quite inspired plan for a, a linear park along the Camock River, a spine running along there. And the whole idea was that that would be made into a green space connecting Inchicore right through this working class area. And of course it came by the southern boundary of the Great Wall of Kilmainham Jail. And about 96, this guy who ran a car showroom next to us put in this application to extend his car showroom right up, literally up against the wall of Kilmainham Jails, severing this artery and utterly disrupting this plan for a linear park. So I went at this issue as 
passionately as I could to try and stop it with all my might, but I didn't succeed. And what, what I found remarkable at the time was the utter and complete lack of passion on the part of the city planners themselves to defend what had been their own vision of the city. And this is a point, I think, where I'm sashaying into now, which is in, in, in that project I saw an interface between this idea of heritage and the future of the city. That if we lost this battle, it wasn't just a battle to protect the wall of Kilmainham Jail and its integrity. It was a battle to preserve the relationship between this heritage structure and a very visionary and futuristic idea of how a city should breathe through a green space. So we lost both, in a sense, a dimension of veneration for the past there, plus the possibility of a better kind of urban lived future, just in losing that one instance. Um, one of the great strengths of your books is you do not sentimentalize heritage. This has been, in my, for me, one of the banes of my career, is the slushy, slick rhetoric that, with which heritage is invested every time. People go soft and sentimental on heritage quicker than anything else I know. Uh, this book is delightfully free of any sentimentality on this, no more than on the notion of community. Another positive intensifier that people love to drop into sentences just for the sheer sake of making them glow in a meaningless way. Um, they, uh, they say here, for, I would like to quote this, that the 21st century attachment, they describe the 21st century attachment to rigid Georgian ge geometries. And then they say, quote, conservation groups have increasingly conscripted these geometries as fixed benchmarks for determining rigid street parapet heights and plot widths. I think to some extent we're enslaved by our by our veneration of the past, and they, they hint at it here in some way. And it's very difficult for us to have, ironically enough, a sense of the history of heritage. Heritage is a very modernist, indeed a postmodernist phenomenon. And Sean O'Fuelon, who wrote The Irish Journey in 1940, uh, was certainly no sentimental Georgian. I just, just to put this in perspective, I just quote a little piece from O'Fuelon here. Um, he talks about Georgian architecture, quote, it was a lovely, artificial, sophisticated, deliberate creation that Dublin rose on the ruins of the older Ireland, just as modern Ireland has risen at the ruins of, of Georgian Dublin. This ruby-bricked nucleus he regards as now in very high, very right and proper decay. We are bailiffs in the Georgian parlour, and the Hanoverian and Williamite world is long since bankrupt. Mountjoy Square is bug-ridden. Rutland Square is ruined forever. Dominic Street, once with Henrietta Street, the most fashionable residential quarter, is a howling slum. And the same is true of a score like it. And you can, there's almost a barely conceit note of kind of Gotterdammerung, I think, in the voice of O'Fuelung there. But I think the, I suppose, the, the thing is that if we, if we over-sentimentalise heritage in the way we perceive the city, we occlude the possibilities of creation and futurity. Um, fut futurism seems to have died somewhere in the 60s I, I somehow have this funny suspicion um, and hasn't been resurrected since and heritage has occupied all of the oxygen that a certain kind of uh, future optimism shall we say about cities should have at least been in dialectical relationship with that view that's not there um, just coming back to something that Daniel said then as a final point you do pull your, you do pull your punches um, politically in the book I believe um, and maybe that's for a good pragmatic reason. But in some ways, I feel we've, had, an, we've had, had, if anything, too much pragmatism in Irish political life for too long, where people thought that if you just simply avoided saying 
certain kinds of explicit things, you could gain allies and progress with a grander vision of things. And at one point you say, uh, a consensus has emerged, has, quote, has since emerged that the fault of all this inappropriate development was foisted upon a non-witting city by greedy or unprincipled developers facilitated by indifferent administrators and compliant politicians. The reality is that most developers did what they legally could and most regulators and planners did what they readily understood. But I don't think that's sufficient in some way. You know, I think that we really do have to name the kind of corrupt consensus that not only got these people obeying the law that existed, but changing the law so that they could obey the new law that existed that facilitated their egregious avarice right through that period of the Celtic Tiger. We had the perfect storm of, of, of corrupt mutual facilitation going. And I think, you know, unless we actually really do state this, and call it explicitly for what it is, it is going to be very difficult to enable this new kind of, funnily enough, this new kind of straight-talking, edgy-type uh, discourse about planning and the future of the city that we need to get going. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I also, in reading it, I, I found myself immediately after I put it down and completed it, and I read it in, in one sitting, because it's actually quite a compelling read, um, I felt really re-energised with a sense of alertness towards Dublin. But I would actually like to focus, there were two, and it is quite a provocative book, it's willfully provocative, I think, um, and there are two provocations that I would like to address, and the first one um, is around ideas around community-led resistance to change development. Um, and as much as possible, what I've done, I, I've looked to actually quote from the book because I'm aware that not everyone here has actually had the opportunity to read the book. So in a particular chapter, which is called Inner City Urbanism, the following is written. That many on the community left who claim to champion the cause of these inner city neighbourhoods instead of claiming a special and rightful place in the urban hierarchy, demand a special place in the consciousness of city myth-making. With the myth-making comes a demand for quasi-territorial independence and an economically perverse desire for decoupling or detachment from the vitality of the commerce of the city, including an inalienable right to demand a veto on any intrusive developments that are not perceived to directly be benefit the indigenous locals. And in a chapter that precedes that one, which is called Choking Urbanism, it's written, Apartment apartheid is the sometimes obvious, sometimes hidden discrimination of apartment dwellers in inner-city Dublin. Like most discrimination, it is subtle and often denied. Gated communities, transience, gentrification are just some of the accusations, slurs, and assaults hurled at an emerging Dublin urban culture and lifestyle. What I would uh, like to propose, and it's in response to the book uh, and is informed by the book at the same time, is that the Celtic Tiger building boom, which actually obviously replicated a US model of urban development, cannot actually sustainably diffuse the most important social and ecological contradictions of urban life. And that for me, the idea of community resistance to some developments has actually been precisely because the community were unable to identify how they were to be beneficiaries. And actually, Dublin City, the, geography, the geographies of repression in the city articulates itself directly 
with the emerging patterns of segregation produced through gated community developments. And these developments and the patterns of resistance to the development in the city has as much to do with perceptions of power, knowledge, and agency. And that my sense is that perhaps we might understand the myth-making of working class inner city communities as an excessive attempt at a representation of culture precisely because of and in response to asymmetrical political, economic, and social conditions. Um, what's very, very strong in the book is that what was followed in, in Dublin was a US model, and which is why I was surprised around the comments around gated communities, because I would have thought one of the important lessons to learn from the US model of, of urban urbanism is really the advent of gated communities. Um, because the key point is that the, those living behind gates have actually, certainly in America, have become detached from mainstream society, not only physically, politically. Um, increasingly in the US, uh, those living in gated communities, there are privatized services that's from recreation to rubbish collection and security. And also now increasingly in the UK, there are a number of semi-privatized communities which are following an alignment and very close to US model. And Anthony Giddens, who was an advisor uh, whilst with Tony Tony Blair, um, described the problems of gated communities in the UK as the voluntary exclusion of the elites and the involuntary exclusion of the excluded. But what's quite clear, and certainly is a pattern that you can see in the US, is that main inst mainstream institutions, schools, hospitals, and local government become increasingly marginalized and with a consequent impact on public sector services and local government and local democracy. In Redrawing Dublin, gated communities are described as merely restricting public access to private communal space. And this, this private communal space is the equivalent of the front and back garden of the suburban home. I would propose that gated communities are by their very nature socially exclusive and therefore socially excluding. And that perhaps we might then reconfigure the kind of community activism, the community left, as it were, and their ex anxiety and resistance to change is predicated on an observation that de developments often reaffirm polarization between communities. Um, however, what's very clear in, in the publication is that there is the uh, indication that there is actually little evidence of gentrification having taken place in inner city Dublin. Um, longer term residents have not been displaced and areas of inner city Dublin remain disadvantaged with extensive areas of dereliction. Nevertheless, I actually think it is important to address the concerns of working class communities as the most obvious mechanism through which a social policy of creating a balanced communities can be achieved, in which there's a planning policy that doesn't just emphasize high density, but also with equal emphasis, social inclusion and social mix. And this has really become quite clear in London because it's now widely acknowledged in London that the key worker crisis, as it's described in London, was actually brought about precisely because the concerns of working class communities were dismissed. So there's a housing affordability crisis, there's kind of key hotspots throughout London, and they're unable to have teachers and nurses actually living in London where they're working. 
And this is actually seen, it's become a crisis that's acknowledged because it's actually seen as now threatening uh, the capital's economy. And then I just want to just give a description of something that's happened uh, in London in terms of how a working class communities uh, anger around development, resistance, has been poorly managed, to say the least. And this is in the borough of Hackney. Um, local communities, they have a resistance to development, and it was dismissed by the mayor of Hackney, Jules Pipe. And this is a quote from him, that it was anyone who had any resistance to the development was part of a far-left contingent, and they wanted to keep Hackney crap. <laughs> so... What happened was there were obviously many artists living in the borough of Hackney. So what they did in response to this really quite offensive comment were they produced uh, T-shirts, badges, and posters. And the, all the badges and posters, they declare, keep Hackney crap, and I love keeping Hackney crap. Simultaneous to this, because then Hackney got very nervous, uh, the borough council. So in the local libraries, which are managed by the borough council, they denied the rights of local and established writers in Sinclair, Michael Rosen, to either launch publications in the library or offer readings in the library because of their perceived opposition to the developments in preparation for the London Olympics. So quite apart from it not being something where the ideology is a cul-de-sac, this is actually very significantly uh, shot through with certain ideologies quite clearly. Um, in London, and I think it's... Uh, it, it's an alarm and it's something to kind of consider in terms of how we think of our own future in Dublin, is that London City's emphasis on economic growth and the attempts to develop Hackney can be seen as driven through what I would describe as a law enforcement urban renewal process, with current approaches to urban renewal exacerbating social instability by reproducing aggressive forms of policing. And it's a type of policing that's actually very raw and is really has significant memories. It's a, a remembrance of the, the, the riots in the 1980s, which was brought about by institutional racism and a very aggressive policing. Um, currently now, obviously, there is, well, not obviously, but there is a domestic Islamophobia, and so this aggressive policing is also now being positioned as a kind of a war on terror. Um, obviously, this aggressive policing, which is sitting side by side by an agenda of urban renewal, has resulted in distrust between local residents and the local authority, which is claiming to be revitalizing Hackney. Additionally, I would suggest, and I, I, I kind of think of it, of it as a warning sign, that what's happened in London, crime has been now framed as a security threat because of the danger it is thought to pose to market-led growth. So urban governance in the poorer city, inner-city areas of London increasingly takes on the character of a containment strategy, and in fact, you can see this, this new type of urban policing, even as you watch the, you know, the idea of kettling in terms of protests. Um, this is, uh, containment is the new mechanism of policing in London. Um, notably, however, in Hackney, uh, there is significant cross-community consensus on the proposed improved public transport infrastructure. It's seen as both necessary and desirable, and car ownership in Hackney, as in most inner-city areas of London, is actually relatively low compared to Dublin, where car ownership and car dependency actually informs how the city works. There's an emphasis on traffic and the priority that's given to cars. And the, the stuff about car ownership is actually very strong. Um, so despite the Lewis, anyone's actual ability to navigate the city 
connecting the north to the south side remains significantly challenging. I'm not a car driver. I've never learned how to drive. I don't own a car. Um, so my experience of all the cities I've lived in has always been as, as a pedestrian, as a public transport user. The only other city I found as problematic as Dublin is Los Angeles. Um, so I've just got a little clip. It was supposed to be more of a surprise, but this is a little clip which, but to throw a bit of comedy into the room. But also, I think it's, it, it's so, as a pedestrian, Dublin City is just actually not pleasant. Um, and so this is just to make us laugh a little bit. every night. It's fucking great. <laughs> I just want to go home now. I got what I wanted. It's, uh, it's great being back here again. I do like it very much. The place is looking good too. I was going along that street that goes from the bottom of Grafton Street along beside Trinity College. The railings on one side and shops along towards the Kilkenny shop. I go there some days. Haven't this time. I don't know why. Anyway, I was walking along and I came to that. Sometimes I buy a cap when I'm here, a tweed cap. I bought many of them. I lose them all. Those tweed Irish fella, and I feel all fucking bejesus, you know. We just fucking give that. Since you put the hat on, it's fucking all hello there. That happened in here, didn't it? That's where the whole fucking issue began. Oh, Jesus, some success that, isn't it? I'm writing the sequel. It's, it's for alcoholics. It's called Liver Dance. <laughs> All drunk guys with their hands in their pockets. Come on. <laughs> anyway, I'm going along that street towards the Kilkenny place. And I come, I've got the bonnet, I've got the, the, the tweed cap there and I come to that street that comes in from Stevens Green down to the government street you know the one where the buses fucking hurtle round like <laughs> they don't care about lights, people, fucking beep beep, they only know they're bigger than you, you fucking lose your toes you're trying to make it to the island you know People making their will here. If I don't come back, give that to my mother. I may be gone for quite some time. And it's not in the middle of the island, it's over near the other side. They're already on the guys from here. We made it easy, it's fucking easy for you. So I've got a tunnel going, I'm trying to get to the island. We've got an escape committee, we're going down the tunnel there. Trousers full of dirt, something like that. But I just thought that was an interesting find because the city doesn't work, it is a walkable city. So I've just got a, a wee bit of a conclusion here. Is I'd really like to commend uh, 
the writers really, for the furthest visual essay, um, it is resolutely pro-urban, um, and it has pertinently, it does really pertinently address the failings of recent developments that actually followed a US-UK urban model. And what the, the book also does, it asks us to consider some, some of which are more internally peaceful, socially less polarised, less market-oriented, and more sustainable models in other parts of the world as well, worthy of consideration. And just to follow on my whole point around the cars, I, I think it's something for us to really be alert to. I mean, the events that following Katrina in the US where the victims were those that couldn't afford to own a car, couldn't afford, therefore, to get out of the city, point to, it, to a grid of dynamic unevenness in New Orleans in which the contradictions of the city and the suburb, class and race, were confirmed as the elements of neoliberalism that have remade the urban, as an image of delocalised, individualised competition in which resources are distributed along hardening, polarised lines of difference and where the social state is in retreat. And obviously, the other thing around the, the car ownership, in the midst of what is obviously an accelerating energy crisis, the suburbs that sit outside Dublin city administration and the city itself will urgently need to understand ecolo ecological challenges as a collective, not as a private lifestyle issue. And not simply to address the city's tourist economy and to answer the question which is posed in redrawing Dublin, has Dublin the urban ambition to make the connection between the city's tourist economy and the city's walkable streets, but also, as the book declares, as a means to sustaining uh, a sustainable future of the city. So... Uh, without further ado, maybe to hand over to the audience and we'd welcome any questions, comments, responses, but we deplore shyness. It's actually a question for Paul um, on the title of today's seminar regarding phony urbanism. Um, does he have examples of good urbanism um, in Dublin or in Ireland or, and how might he rate the Italian Quarter by Mick Wallace? Um. Do you want to take that? Paul, do you want to? So the, 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 your question essentially is you're looking for examples of good urbanism within Dublin? I'm on the spot here now as a, as, as a planner for the city. Uh, there's, I think there's many examples of good urbanism in, in Dublin, uh, many. Um, uh, I think Temple Bar actually is a very good example of good urbanism. It gets a very bad press from, from people who actually I don't actually think visit the place, to be honest, especially during the day or at the weekend. Um, the second part of the question, yeah, I think Mick Wallace, uh, uh, the Italian district is that what we're talking about that is, is a fantastic space. Um, it's interesting that he held that space in his own ownership because... Um, he wanted to do interesting things there, including hosing it down all the time, which the city doesn't do a lot. Um, and I think that's a, a, a great space. Is that the <laughs> okay. Anybody else? Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm speaking as uh, someone who's involved in, and has been involved in the Dublin City Development Plan over a number of years, um, and also as an architect. For too long, the developers have held sway completely over Dublin City Council. 
and there's a huge conflict of interest in that most of the income for Dublin City Council, a large part of it comes from development. So since the 60s, we've had developer-led planning to a large extent. The development plan itself, um, you know, I have tried over the years with 40 residents associations in Dublin to get clarity in the development plan, but there seems to be a total resistance to that in that if we made it clear, then, um, you know, developers wouldn't be able to drive a hook, coach and horse through it. Um, I have fortunately haven't read the book, but look forward to doing that. Um, Dublin, fortunately, is more than, you know, it's built spaces, and I think people make a city, um, and Dublin's very fortunate in having, you know, we have the sea on the one hand, we have mountains, we have access to fantastic geographical facilities. Um, I think the problem as well with Dublin City Council is that they, in terms of redeveloping the city centre for, um, you know, the less privileged areas, they went into this public-private partnership deal, which of course have all fallen through, um, and you have huge swathes of the city that are derelict. And I know that Trinity College did a study on engagement with people in um, sort of public housing, and their, the outcome of that really was that everybody felt they went in wholehearted, you know, to become engaged, but they felt that Dumb City Council was completely obtuse to deal with, and their concerns were never, were never really listened to. Um, but I look forward to reading the book. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Martin to the front here. Now, because we're recording, you're welcome to identify yourself, but you're also welcome to, <laughs> to not. Hi. Um, so interesting talk. I haven't got a chance to read the book yet, but again, I look forward to doing it. Um, I'm Kino Callaghan. I'm with Nursa in any way minute. Um, I just had a question for Paul. Um, he was talking earlier about a lot of sort of urban interventions at the moment, thinking about urbanism and thinking about urbanism in Dublin. And he suggested that there wasn't a lot of interesting ideas I wonder if you could elaborate on that as to why. And perhaps is it a case that we're still locked into a certain developmental model um, and that other solutions or other engagements need to sort of fit in with that? This is, this is the topic that came up when, when in response to the question about the fact that there's been a flurry of new initiatives yeah. to talk about the city, not necessarily coming from within... Uh, some of them are within the council, some of them are elsewhere, some of them are within academia and so forth. So we were saying there's a lot of initiatives to talk to the city, but you expressed some concern about whether or not there was some new thinking really manifest here. Do you want to? Um, I, th I think what I was trying to stress is that well, there's a lot of uh, events and a lot of... Um, creative stuff going on in terms of organizations, city council-led, uh, uh, sponsored uh, projects, etc., is that it, 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 it doesn't necessarily follow that the inclusions of a lot of these um, uh, organizations or creative events, whatever, in, in terms of their thinking, is, is interesting. As to why, um, maybe that's for a wider discussion you know, here, as to why people might uh, believe that. I, I believe there is a, a, a strong strand of anti-urban thinking that exists 
in, in, in Dublin, and uh, it, it explains a lot, um, uh, without going through the book again, I think it explains a lot of, 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 of the, the, the problems in the city. Anyone else want to? This is for anyone who would like to answer it. Um, I'm coming from the point of view of being an artist and kind of looking, trying just to engage with my city on a very basic level, and um, not even making work with it, but just feeling a sense of ownership and being involved with it. And just talking about the fact there's a lot of initiatives, but it all seems very transitory. There's no actual space. That space is currency within Dublin, and there just doesn't seem many spaces that are permanent or where this, that provide this platform where this kind of discourse can take place. And just asking, do you think it's necessary for more spaces to exist in Dublin, how could it happen? I know it's a very general question, but anyway, that I remember it too. So, so your question is, do we need dedicated spaces where the, the debates about the identity, nature, future context of the city would and take where place? where all these different voices can exist together. I mean, rather than go back to Paul and Marty, or maybe, would anybody on the panel like to? I would suggest that there possibly there are spaces, um, and I think obviously the challenge of any venue is actually to rethink itself as a civic space that can actually accommodate these type of conversations. There's also increasingly going to be more what's slack spaces, and that's going to be interesting in terms of particularly in the amongst the arts community what negotiations can be achieved uh, to actually take even temporarily, but for some secure temporary tenure of those spaces otherwise uh, we've just got you know because that, 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 that there's a likelihood of greater spaces becoming more spaces becoming available given the, the uh, crash so there's certainly I wouldn't suggest there's a need to build another space I think we have the spaces it's around their use I mean I think it's worth emphasizing that we are here in a public library um, that's that's you know run for as a public good and I do think that there is it's given developments uh, across the water, it's worth attending to the significance and role of public provision in culture and in knowledge, and particularly the public library system. And I suspect that there is, a, there is maybe a tendency to overemphasize the idea of dedicated space as opposed to utilizing and valuing the spaces that we have and fully, fully using them. But I think um, there's, there's also a further issue here about whether or not when the arts community wishes to engage with the larger question of the city, whether or not they are able to move out of their comfort zones and begin to address the, the, the really strong demands that an interdisciplinary, cross-professional, open public conversation requires. It's a, it's a, I think this is something we hope we will surface a little bit today, is, is the challenge of moving between professions and disciplines. I don't know if anybody else wants to... I was having a conversation with uh, some people in um, uh, Edinburgh the week before last, or last week before last, um, about some of these things about public spaces and what you do with them. And this was sort of in the context of um, occupations that are happening of, you know, academic spaces and so on in in the UK. Uh, and some critiques where people are saying, well, having occupied the place, people now don't know why they're there or what their what their aims are, what they're trying to achieve. And um, and I think that I think that this reminds us that that um, just because the private sector withdraws or recedes or shrinks, it doesn't necessarily mean that the 
that um, you know public space. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the, that the public spaces that we have are, are necessarily um, you know still going to remain and and stay the same. In fact, it, it usually means because of the way in which uh, private investment has become so uh, so enmeshed in in the public sector, the way in which the public has become so dependent on that private finance, it usually means that public spaces are under threat as well. So um, I, I just agree that it's a, it's a question of making sure that we uh, utilise fully the public spaces that we have and, and, and that we... That we um, I think, as we were saying earlier, that beyond our pragmatism about what we do to solve problems here and now in our in our spaces, that we um, that we do programmatically defend public spaces, uh, and in, in the physical sense and in the you know in the in the sense of public social spaces as well. So, um. okay. Yes, I, I found the whole discussion very interesting. But just as a citizen, what I think the big challenge is are, as a citizen, even in this group here, we're talking about things, and there are plenty of fora for discussion, but when it comes to actually implementation, how do we get implementation? Now, I think that's the big challenge. Like Paul said in the beginning about um, the people who are the decision makers and the policy makers, how do we get this real connection between what the public want? I mean, I read research recently that said the two big priorities from the people who are living in the city is how do we have apartments that are designed and suitable for urban living and how do we have public spaces you know that can be utilized so you know why can't we have this what is the big um, block that happens between the planners government city council and the developers and the citizen who's going to actually whether they live in these um, apartments as you know in the in, uh, in the public sector or whether it's in the private sector what is it within us that we can't have a progress in this area that's what i'd like to hear more about okay well before i try to find answers we'll take i just because i suspect these are maybe expansions yeah, I, on this I, I wanted to just go back at, to the, to the point before just to, to add a little bit to him and to assert that any space that's not being used that could be used should be considered public space in other words, not just accepting the division between pro already privatised space and dedicated corporation-owned space, like a library. But if there, if there are spaces that aren't being used in the city that could be used, then the public should assert, and, and the city council should support the public in asserting a right to use unused space uh, publicly. And that would also feed into spaces for art. It would feed into um, uh, community spaces uh, that, that could be used to retain cultural capital within the city and attract further cultural capital to the city. No developer should have the right to withhold forever and ever and ever stuff that they're not using and you should punitively tax them for unused spaces. And the public should assert a right over things that aren't being used. If they're empty, they're ours. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Darabal Murphy. Um, I was just recently looking at the IFSC just as an exercise at the, the DDDA and um, I decided to go into the public art to have a look to see what public art was actually created as part of the development. And I found out that there was probably as little as three commissioned pieces for the, for, for the area and that a lot of the art, maybe five or six pieces, had been brought in or commissioned by private individuals. And I, I couldn't understand why this area, which was in the middle of the city key art centre, 
and create on the other side of it, um, that there wasn't more involvement in the community. I also looked at, at what was actually there in terms of representing the heritage and the community, and I saw that the community centre had kind of been pushed over to the east wall. And I was wondering then, I, I went into the planning of, of it and to have a look at the environmental impact and all of the rest, and there was no one document that kind of looked at all of the things that we're talking about, the culture, the heritage, the, the, the social impact on the area. And I, was, I, I then looked into the Pigeon House uh, site where there was actually an environmental, the detail, uh, detailed environmental impact study done. Um, but again, it was all into little different categories, historic buildings, uh, transport, all of the various different things. And I was, I was thinking, is there some kind of um, uh, a vehicle that could be created out of the environmental impact study that would have a cultural study done of any new development and that would involve an interdisciplinary team that we would look at small and large-scale developments so that, if anything, it even just brought about a, a kind of a body of knowledge about different areas. Um, I think, in a sense, you're beginning to respond to Jean's question, but Jean's question is maybe uh, broader in as much as it's, it's bringing us to the question of how do we connect between an analysis of what has happened, um, a, a mapping of potentials, possibilities, and the actual achievement of implementation. And I, I mean, I do think it is the $64,000 question um, about how do we, how do we mobilize a, a critical analysis of what's happening with the city and theorized potentials, how do we mobilize those into action? But it seems to me that that's got to be a question that's answered at multiple levels and is probably going to entail questions of governance, questions of decision-making and um, democracy, and not necessarily something that resides simply within our institutional processes, but actually is to do with the citizenry collectively in the city and our culture of democracy or our gaps in that civic culture. But um, does anybody want to...? Yeah, I think that the connectivity has to come down to something like you know, linguistically, the, 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 the wall between the word policy and politics is actually paper thin, although some would wish that it was a brick wall and, it, in fact, that the two things were two completely separate realms. And quite often people are very comfortable with the notion uh, of policy as a kind of a technocratic, well-meaning zone that is somehow disconnected from the kind of issues that I think Sarah raised very pointedly uh, in her presentation and which to some extent, I suppose, helped to fill out for me some of what I was trying to get at when I was talking about rationality and planning. Uh, and I think when, when she spoke about how power fits in there, I thought it was very, very true in the sense that it would appear that those who actually possess power have control of the rational discourse, and those who do not possess power don't are left in a position of apparent irrationalism. You know, the crap hackney scenario is basically what they're left with as a, as a fighting tool. So, in a sense, if we're going to bridge these gaps, I think we do need to realise that we have to subscribe to values that are embarrassingly political in our post-political age, things like questions of social justice, which I suppose is an interesting question for you. It's, it's, I don't think it's a phrase that occurs in the book. Correct me if I'm wrong. But why should we be embarrassed with laying down a fundamental set of values that are essentially political in, in, in nature 
to guide at least some kind of possibility of a convergent discourse. Because otherwise we're merely left with a series of discrete technocratic interventions that don't necessarily amount to a holistic vision of society. Um, I suppose I'm just responding particularly to what Derville was saying and some picking up maybe um, on, on what Pat has just been talking about as well. Except I think I... I think I see things slightly uh, differently in that I, I don't know that there's a huge gap between the aspirations of those who plan and the aspirations of those who wish they would stop or who wish they would do it better or <coughs> who think they have a different idea about what a city is. My sense is that it is a question of method. It comes back to what Mick was talking about, about finding ways to allow different forms of knowledge, different forms of analysis to work together to produce a more complex understanding of how cities work and how they might work better. I think for my own part and the reason I suppose for looking back at some instances of that kind of investigation was to say that there is a value in books like this in understanding what we have and how we got to what we have and how particular moments, particularly maybe moments that work, um, how they worked and why they worked. Uh, for instance, uh, I was just finding out recently and was struck by this phenomenon of the kind of revitalization of the canal as an artery of movement of pedestrian and cycling traffic, which happened as far as I know because of the way the Lewis comes across the canal. So the people are coming on the Lewis to the stop on the canal, picking up a bike because you can pick up a bike, and then cycling or and then cycling down as far as the Docklands, in fact. And now they're making a cycle path along the canal from that Lewis stop. But I don't think that was a plan. I think that was a series of slightly unconnected events. The Lewis was made, the cycling scheme arrived, was successful. As a consequence of that, the city is reimagined. But in being reimagined, actually rediscovered a way of movement that was there you know, since the turn of the 19th century. So the ways in which cities start to... And then on the other hand, you can think of lots of planned initiatives that don't work at all because um, they don't somehow have that um, capacity to do the things that people want cities to do for them. Um, so it might be worth us taking more time to really think about those those phenomena that work, that make the city work for us. I don't mean in a sort of instrumental way. I mean, it just makes it more pleasurable for us to use and discovers new perspectives and discovers new ways of moving. Um, and look at why those things work, which is partly to do with private initiatives, partly to do with public planning, partly to do with the citizens and, the way, and their own aspirations, and just think about how those things can work together. That sounds very woolly, I know, but just that's my, my contribution. To add, um, there's a term that I perceive is, is used by both planners and architects, which is called desire pass, which I think is actually quite a, 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 an interesting use of language, which is basically when the planners have actually planned that people are going to walk from A to B in this particular route, and then they find that the people actually go a completely different route. The route that the people choose is called the desire path. So there's something in that which obviously as, profession as a discipline is known, but actually could be expanded to actually make the flow of a city actually be suited, be built and designed and fit for the people and follow the desire 
and the paths of desire of people who are actually resident, which at the moment is obviously, it's quite clear, that's not how Dublin in recent years was developed. Okay, we have two more from, I'll go to the back and then we'll come to, to Jane and then we'll go to Alan. So at the back first at the Hi, Miriam Fitzpatrick. I'm going to offer an apparent irrational thought. I wonder, sometimes books come from series of articles written in advance, and it would be quite nice, I think, to maybe fill some of the slack spaces of property pages here with the chapters, rare, you know, some chapters of the book, just a thought. And another thought might be maybe to start your initiative into Tel Aviv by publishing, in, publishing them there rather than here. Yes, just to respond there, um, when Sarah, you're speaking about being a pedestrian in the city, if it came back to the, the citizen being the, I suppose, the end user, and then how you work around these paths of desire, you know, what the citizen wants, to me that's a common sense approach to take, and certainly there's a route, like, Jean Byrne is my name. I set up the foundation called Design 21st Century, and I sense there's a certain um, suggestion here that perhaps some of the work that we're doing is, you know, of no consequence. I think there's room for every, um, for different perspectives, but taking that the citizen is at the heart of the city, we need to understand how the citizen lives in the city and to have respect for that as a citizen, not as an academic or anything else other than as, as a citizen. Also, coming back to, sorry, I don't know your name, the man there, but when you talk about um, social values, you know, what are our values as a society? I think that's fundamental to the question of how you build a city. Until we're prepared to actually discuss and name what our values are, who we are and who we want to become, we have a glorious opportunity to become a better city. And that involves participation and democratization of information from the citizens. Just a small, <coughs> just a small point that follows on from uh, what Sarah said, and to some extent what Hugh just said as well. That, um, that um, cities are not spaces that are that are um, built out of consensus. They're not spaces that can be designed to keep everybody happy. Nor are they spaces that can be designed to be entirely benevolent. They're they are spaces which are which are built around containing certain tensions, and. Um, and satisfying, you know, or, or, um, or you know, venting others, uh, and uh, and these paths of desire that Sarah talks about are, you know, that this is it, the whole city is a network of conflicting paths of desire, um, and um, and 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 of, and there's no way in which that can be planned out of existence. Nor nor would we ever want to live in the city that had, where all of those things had been planned out of existence because the city is that kind of network of exclusions and um, and overcoming of exclusions and of uh, you know of, of coming to terms with space and of identifying the ways in which it could be done differently but it will never be you know the city is never going to be a perfectly designed space and so um, I think if we if we always think of I think if we always think of a city is a space that can that can help us to a arrive at this, you know, um, idealised, consensual, rational uh, way of being with one another in society. Then we're always going to misunderstand what a city is. 
Um, very quickly, Lass. Yeah. I, I hadn't ever really worked out in my head, but there's, a, there's something in Redrawing Dublin which actually makes, for me, a real summary of what you can do to make a city work because there's a, there's a scenario where, where the city has got mixed zoning permissions is where it's diverse. So diversity attracts diversity. And actually, a city, a, a centre, an urban centre, is about diversity. So that seemed to me really quite obvious, which I hadn't actually realised what was sitting behind the reason why some areas were diverse, that it was actually it was to do with policy, actually, that they were politically being fashioned. Um, I'm just going to shortly invite... Um, Alan Mee, Director of the Masters in Urban Design in UCD, to respond to the discussion so far and to, to bring this phase of our conversation to a conclusion. But before I do that, I just wanted to say three things. Uh, one is that, as Mark indicated at the beginning of, um, of the afternoon, that this discussion about um, urbanism and also the discussion of publicness is an ongoing conversation that we've been working with a number of researchers and with a number of different um, threads to that. But there's one particular thread which I'd like to identify, which is actually a theme which hasn't cropped up yet, but maybe in a subsequent conversation might, which is the question of food and the production of food for to feed the city. And um, a, a book has come out in the UK recently, in the last two years, called Hungry City by Carolyn Steele, which looks at the question of urbanism through the lens of um, food, written by a book written by an architect dealing with the question of food production and this is a thematic that we are very early stages of developing and we would welcome anyone who has in any suggestions or recommendations about how we might grow that particular thematic the question of feeding the city um, in future sessions so that's just one point um, the second thing is to just identify that it's, it's quite unusual for us to structure a seminar in this way where we take as the point of departure a single recently published book. It's much more normal for us to begin with a set of readings, usually from an established canon of expertise or whatever, rather than grabbing something that's, that, that's relatively fresh and, and still at the point of, of being contested. Um, and I, I want to acknowledge the generosity of um, Paul and Motti in agreeing to kind of allow us to build a conversation around the book. As it turned out, there were very positive responses from much of the panel, as well as there were insightful criticisms, I think, proposed as well. But w we have no way of knowing what way people were going to go on it, because when we invited people, they hadn't yet read the book, so we, we were throwing it open. So there's a, there's a generosity in that, which I think brings me to the third point, um, which is the challenge that we face, I, and I th do think this is culturally specific. This is something to do with the Irish cultural context, which is our ability to have um, robust public critical dialogue, um, which is robust not in the sense of us championing a position and holding on to it, it no matter what's thrown at us, but the robust kind of critical dialogue whereby positions are formed in the contest, that, that one goes in not quite knowing what one thinks and one, one achieves a provisional position based on the toing and froing of dialogue. Um, and that one can actually say, I used to think this, but now, I, now I've changed my mind under the impact of the better argument or someone else's insight. And I think that this is something which one would imagine 
that uh, higher education, the academy, would be the centre of, but I would suggest it isn't, it, or at least it's not proving an effective centre of it. And I think that it's a real challenge that we should see a much stronger presence of a multiplicity of disciplines in our public discourses that we've heard a lot from economists in the last couple of years despite the fact that the credibility of their discipline must surely be subject to some question. Um, and we have not heard from a whole range of other disciplines in the public domain. And I do not see this as a failing necessarily of our media, though it's partly some responsibility there. I think this is to do with the particular cultural sensibility that is being developed within the precincts of higher education. And I do think this is something that I would hope we can, we can address further. But anyway, I've already spoken too much. I'm a bad chair. And I'm going to hand over to Alan, who's been invited both to respond to what was said, but also maybe to things that have not been said. So, Alan, me. Uh, thanks very much, Mick. Um, I, I'm delighted to respond. I'll do it very quickly. Um, it's now 4 o'clock, so um, I'm hoping I'll spend five to seven minutes um, it's a very peculiar uh, position to be in to respond um, in relation to a work. I, I know Paul and Motti well personally and to their friends, and I have had limited access to be a critic-stroke uh, friend of the project to some degree um, over the time that it happened. And um, it's really interesting to spend two hours listening to um, broadly congratulatory and discourse about the book, which I think is appropriate. Um, however, um, I think as Mark began to invite in relation to what the reputation of the book will be uh, when he talked about it, um, I think there is a world of discourse that can be connected to this book and the things that are in this book, and I think this is the beginning of something fascinating that I think can happen. Um, but uh, Mark's opening comments where he mentioned what the standing might be over time, um, I think were really interesting as a beginning of uh, the thing that was to follow, which was, I think, a broadly um, a congratulation in relation to the achievement. So obviously I'd add to my uh, congratulations in relation to the achievement. Um, but I also want to say two, one or two very quick things in relation to things that may not have been said, brought up in the room, um, but I wanted to just cross over um, other things that were mentioned um, and just give a few highlights from it. Um, my first question when I came in uh, for the first about hour was... Um, What's Billy Connolly going to have to do with all of this? <laughs> <clears throat> because the audience, the panel weren't aware about it, the audience was actually watching Billy for about an hour. Um, and obviously, Sarah then pointed out just very quickly, but uh, I have to tell you the story I have about that corner. Um, I worked in CIE in the 90s when we were trying to put tram lines into Dublin, basically. I'll give you a very short version of that story. Uh, Garrett Fitzgerald, in the late 90s, took a measuring tape on that corner and supposedly proved to the Dublin public that you could not put a tram going down from Grafton Street past Trinity and onto O'Connell Street because of the tightness of that corner. And Garrett was of a very extreme opinion, and he was telling the world, basically, that it wasn't the way for that tram to go. But what was much more interesting to lots of people observing the, the, the lack of discourse that happened in relation to putting transportation on that street, public transportation on that street at that time, was that there was almost no informed opinion around 
mad people who got out at 7 o'clock in the morning with a measuring tape to tell us one version of the story, and then lots of other mad people who gave a completely opposite one, that we did not have the discourse, we did not have the way to talk about it. That corner has gone down in history uh, for people like uh, French urban planners who would come along and just found our level of discourse about how we were going to put public transport in Dublin to be hilarious as they noted the media accounts of where trams could and couldn't go and why the children shouldn't go there. We were simply not having any proper discussion. So just to, that's kind of connected to Pat's point about the river, you know, the, the daughter where you're thinking about a public way. And in fact, you know, finding the constituency for that public way would have been almost impossible, I'm sure. So anyway, this event is a part of a way to think about the fact that there might be communities on all sides who would be learned, who would be having conversations all the time and who would be jumping up to say, we need the bloody tram there. Uh, we almost never heard it in that debate in the, in the late 90s. Hopefully that conversation is evolving. This book is part of that. The book is kind of like an explosion into the discourse around urban culture, uh, particularly in Dublin. Um, so that's one of my questions answered. Why was Billy Connolly up there? Um, now, I just want to generally just refer, I'll just go through the afternoon. Um, Mick then had a very kind of conversational um, discourse with Paul and Motti as well in relation to the book. And I think that there was an answer for me in the the fact that Motti was talking about the public and private are kind of there, but in fact it was a journey for us, and it was kind of not a fun journey, but there was fun in there, and you can tell there was fun. It comes right off the book when you open it up. Um, but I suppose it was also about engagement, and I think that the way that the book kind of can be opened by lots of different parties who can take from it what they want it to be um, is, is clearly an interesting thing by talking to the two of them up there on the table, and they've talked almost not at all about it. And again, I have to tell another story. Uh, when I asked them a long time ago whether they would be there at the opening or they wanted to be represented in relation to the book, they said, absolutely not. It's like a painting done by a painter. It's on a wall. Go and look at the painting. There's no need to talk to the artist. Why would we have to talk? So in a way, it kind of re reminds me, or reminds me over the time that they were very reticent about having a, a sort of a profile in relation to being authors of this thing, go to the book. It was their implication. And to me, it made it stronger, my impression, that this was a creative act. It was a joining of disciplines, and it was um, a, a particular achievement in certain senses. But I think the fundamental in relation to what it is, is it is a creative act, which they got a lot of joy from, which happens to have a lot of intelligence and a lot of relevance to other things. But that is fascinating. I don't know that it, it came up so much during the afternoon that, in fact, um, it is intended partly as an, arti an artistic, or majorly as an artistic contribution. And I suppose that that, um, I think that will come back. That will come back to be looked at again, because I think it's very, very unusual in the creative contribution that it makes in relation to urban discourse in this country. So I just wanted to have that said. And then just to pass through the various points that were made, and I'm sorry, I'm going to do this very quickly, but I think there were important things to take out of each of the things that were said there. Um, just in relation to Hugh and the, the joining of the global and the personal mapping, then obviously um, a, a critical and fascinating thing to say in relation to the book. Um, we don't hear it much in, in the spatial discourse around the design environment in this country. We've got specialists who do one to 10 details of what a door should look like. We've got specialists who tell us how the country should be organized. We don't have people who spend their time looking through the two or even putting the mapping and the personal together enough. Um, then in relation to Daniel, I mean, coming from Belfast and saying that this book has relevance for Belfast is a whole other afternoon's discourse because it's completely fascinating to think that on the island of Ireland where urbanity is under such threat and in a renewed or a, a, a rethought about Belfast, we could be having this sort of discourse with Belfast and with Cork and with Galway. Obviously, that would be fascinating. Um, also, um, Daniel's points about um, private versus public, which came up later with Sarah, and the idea of, of, of local public and larger publicness. Um, we don't even have local public because uh, most of us in this exploded city, which is what I call it, don't even know what neighbourhood we're in. We don't even know where the centre of that is. We don't even know whether we vote in that place and we are local churches here and our shopping is there. We are an exploded entity in relation to what we even are locally, politically. 
um, that has been lost through our 15 years of apparent wealth generation. But uh, my opinion is that uh, you're absolutely right about collecting the, the sense of local publicness. In other words, what am I from? What streets do I want to protect? What local spaces do are, are important to me? And joining that up with the sense of broader publicness in this country, which yourself and myself were involved in a, an initiative at GradCon about a year ago called Republic, and a lot of that was about politics and thinking about what exactly is your connection to that stuff right outside the door, the footpath, the streets, etc. Um, then just to move to Pat and, and talking about language, um, I mean, the story about the River Walk is so relevant to what we all do every day, the normal stuff we do, because uh, in there is, uh, is so much information about why the city fails. There gen generally aren't collective um, communities fighting for the stuff that somebody can very easily say you're not getting. Um, I, the, the issue about heritage, again, there's, a part, there's an audience that may not even be representing itself in the room. I suspect it's not. Um, heritage on its own, you could spend two hours talking about that word. In relation to our designed environment and the professionalization of the designed environment, we have fantastic conservation architects and professionals all over the country now who've kind of invented a culture of how we can look at our buildings and our urban spaces and all those things. And it can be, it can be delicate in relation to the, the ground that has been gained and the professionalism that's there to measure what we have and also open to this discussion. And I think that that was only beginning to get going, or only was just brought up by Pat, I suppose. Um, but there's a whole other discussion for the expertise that has grown hugely here in the last 10 or 15 years in conservation. So we've designed environmental professionals who know a huge amount more of what, about measuring what we have. They don't have enough conversations in rooms like this about why they think it should be kept, why do we need the whole set of protocols, what, and, and then why we also have other, have other uh, needs for expertise in relation to the, the design environment. So, Again, um, the sentiment, sentimentalization of heritage. Um, I'm, I'm afraid another session, I'm sorry about that. And then Sarah, um, I suppose um, the gated communities, the politics, um, law enforcement, urban renewal process, I'm just picking up you know, very quickly things again which I would love to spend 20 minutes each talking about. Um, gated communities is the most directly applicable. Just walk around the liberties, just walk around any of the places that have had new housing. Uh, I was in Spain last week and I had a fascinating discussion with students of architecture talking about why there's no such thing as a portero, which is literally translated as goalkeeper, but in fact is the concierge for the building. So urban Spain, right throughout urban history in recent terms, has had a little granny, she's in the, in the hall, or a little a guy, a person, a man or woman, and their job is basically watch that building, get the cleaner, find out why the light bulbs aren't being changed, be aware of the life of the building, they know everyone in the building. Uh, they need it in urban places other than Dublin. There are about seven concierges in Dublin, I'd say. Maybe there's 27 or 57. Somebody can tell me. We don't have any interest in ever having it. We don't have an apartment for that concierge and apartment building in Dublin. We don't have any sense that there might be a place for that part of that generational mix in relation to an apartment building, etc., etc., etc. So very simple example of how um, we have got the security gates all right and we've got the code to get past that gate. We have no sense about what the space inside, as Paul and Matthew said, might be actually relevant in relation to use by people from outside and how we might have a more evolved way to think about urban living. All of these things covered in the book, but the, the concierge is a perfect little example of how Dublin and somehow never even began to have that discussion over the last 15 years. And we built all that stuff we have to live with for the next 150. Um, so that was Sarah. And then just a few things that might have come up again. I'm sorry, a few things that um, could have been the conversation, but obviously in such a short time can't be. Um, education, um, interdisciplinary education almost is very, very hard to happen. Um, interdisciplinary working as well. I think it's because the education possibly is not allowing enough of conversations like this and ways for the disciplines to be together in education that they don't get to work in local authorities where they're spending much more of their time between the different disciplines at the same, in the same room working on the biggest project, which is the city. Um, again, it would be fascinating to talk, to look at this book through that prism. Clearly, disciplinary 
relationship, uh, ways to look at stuff, and priorities given because this conversation is happening all the time between the disciplines. It seems to nearly go without saying. Uh, Mick mentioned food. I'd mention another word, energy. Um, I'm, I'm kind of reading Cradle to Cradle 10 years after everybody else who read it, and basically theses about you know how it, it can all be good. And I think that in some of the things in the book, um, where the, I think it was Pat maybe who mentioned, um, invite your developer into your area, talk to him, see what he's going to give you back. That actually would fit in right with the philosophy of Cradle to Cradle. Of it's not about stopping everything. It's not about um, you know where we go when we've stopped that development. It's about bringing them in, getting them at the table, and having real conversations about what happens next and how it increases richness. I mean. Wealth of an area, not wealth for a developer. Uh, so energy, I think, and um, rethinking those processes right from the ground up. And that book invites everything from you know, where your toilet paper comes from to how you build developments in the liberties. All that stuff gets brought uh, in. And I think energy, um, it's there. It, there isn't a chapter, but it's, it's, there's implications about how that would happen. Um, and then two final things. Um, first one is, I'm not a planner. I can see a few planners here. I'm not an expert. But my impression is that the British Isles model of planning is that the developer comes along and offers up his plan. Broadly speaking, in European terms, the proposal in relation to a city is offered up to the plan which is already there at the city. So the British Isles version of things where we kind of say, oh, we put something there, we put something there. Now, Ireland is changing that we are getting three-dimensional plans for areas before the plan can be offered up into it. But generally, we need to all be aware that in cultural terms, we have a an absurd, in my opinion, um, uh, broadly developing um, model in relation to how, de how development happens in this country and in England. And I think that we should look at the European models in relation to how development should be happening and spatial thinking happening in advance of people offering you this and bringing you that and giving you versions of things. And then lastly, um, this is a really unusual situation of what I would call research of the now, in inverted commas. In other words, it's research about that stuff that's all around us all the time happening really quickly. We have very good and established areas of research in history and conservation and architecture and urban history, um, but actually research in relation to the stuff that's actually outside the window and changing increasingly fast and with increasingly strong forces on all sides, uh, subject to what's going on in, in NIRSA in relation to bringing together a whole set of uh, issues about mapping and politics and jurisdictions and things, this is a really unusual, and I hope only one of many, um, ways that disciplines can think about that now, researching now, urbanity now, us now, what are we like? I think it's a fantastic achievement, and I would hope it will be joined. It will in, cause other people to go and make books. And by the way, another question, why is it not a website? Why is it not a TV program? Why is it not a whole other? As Miriam said about the t articles, thank you, that's all. Thank you. Thank you. So, just finally, one last point of information. Um, I did ask that uh, Paul Motti might bring a small number of the books with them in case anybody wanted to pick up a copy if they hadn't got a copy already. So I think there might be an opportunity um, at the back of the room at the end if you wanted to pick up uh, a copy of the book. Um, but apart from that minor detail, can I thank our hosts, Dublin Public Library. And also to thank all our speakers and to thank you also for taking uh, your Monday afternoon and spending it indoors when there's a beautiful sun outside. Um, so thank this panel and thank us. Thank you.